Hi, my name is Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames cast and this is going to be the next episode in the Criteria Roundup with a look at January 2012 releases. Now, there are actually three new spine numbers that came out this month and I think for Criterion fans, the one in particular that kind of grabbed people's attention they were getting the most excited over was Ishihiro Honda's Godzilla. Um, but for me anyway, there were all the releases this month held a particular interest. There was a re-release also of Steven Sonnenberg's Traffic on Blu-ray and that's a film that I haven't seen now for about 10 years. I did order it and it hadn't actually arrived in time for me to um, kind of report back. But um, I'm quite keen to see it again because when I saw it at the cinema I was really, really taken with it. And then when I saw it again on DVD um, after it came out I, I wasn't really that impressed with it. And um, I don't know why I suddenly kind of went from these uh, kind of liking it to perhaps kind of not being so keen on it. I don't know, perhaps it was kind of the Oscar buzz or something, but might have even had something to do with um, Catherine Zeta-Jones, who I kind of have a particular dislike for. But I want, when it does come, I will uh, report back because I read on Blu-ray.com that the uh, the image quality and audio is, is really impressive on that. So, And also having seen Contagion recently, uh, I think my kind of interest in Sodensburg has spiked again. Okay, so getting on with the first spine number, which was 593 and Louis Bunuel's Belle de Jour. Belle de Jour is my favourite Louis Bunuel film, and I don't think I can honestly say that it is his best film, nor would I became to say that I've actually seen them all. I've seen about 12 of them, but it's certainly my favourite one, and perhaps one of his most iconic and well-known. And even if you haven't seen the film, I think you would have probably seen images from it, especially the image of uh, Catherine Deneuve as Belle lying on a bed, ranks alongside, I suppose, the legs of Mrs. Robinson as one of the most provocative and outright sexually alluring images ever to come out of cinema. I would say that for anyone who is looking at getting into the films of Bunnell, that I think I can offer one very simple piece of advice, which is don't try and understand them too much. This is not to suggest that they are in some ways totally out there insane mad, but you have to remember this is not a director who walked out of UCLA or kind of really subscribed to any kind of rules regarding cinema. Brunel never intended for his viewers to delve into them too deeply and for those who do, they often find themselves walking into a trap of frankly talking a load of absolute nonsense, some nonsense that during the course of this review I might uh, fall into myself. The one thing I, I've always found about kind of textual analysis in cinema was when I was at university we were um, studying the films of David Lynch and my lecturer was absolutely kind of obsessed really with finding meaning in every single thing that was in them and we would watch Blue Velvet and stuff like that over and over again and she would kind of come out with these kind of really quite um, bizarre sort of theories as to what they were all about and then quite coincidentally one Sunday evening um, there was a I think it was a movie drone special with Mark Cousins he used to in fact Mark Cousins used to do these kind of these shows which was interviewing the directors I don't think it was movie drone I can't remember what it was called now but they were really quite cool little kind of hour-long shows with directors and things like that and one Sunday it was a David Lynch special and David Lynch himself actually sort of said that some of the stuff in his films was just there for being their sake really and you weren't really supposed to kind of think about it too much and when we kind of told our lecturer this she 
she actually had the kind of, I suppose, the intellectual arrogance to say that he wasn't, he was lying and that he, that wasn't true and that everything in his films did have to mean something. And of course, I think you have to kind of take his word for it. And, you know, he obviously, he is the director now. He might have just been saying that to be kind of, I don't know, deliberately sort of uh, mysterious or something like that. But I think sometimes, you know, you're just best off kind of letting certain idiosyncratic uh, elements of films go. And that is why when in The Exterminating Angel that you see a bear walking round the house that these uh, people are trapped in. If you don't know the, the story of The Exterminating Angel, sorry, I will just kind of recap. It's about basically a kind of a group of bourgeoisie. Uh, I don't really like saying that word either. I, I always feel like a bit of a tit. But I suppose upper middle class idiots, I think, would be a slightly more uh, apt who are in a, they go around a house for a party and basically can't leave a room in the house um, for reasons that are never really quite explained. But during the course of the film, um, you suddenly see a bear walking around and there, it's an actual bear. It's, it, it's, you know, not a kind of like someone in a suit or anything like that. And you can kind of sit there and kind of wonder, you know, what, what, what's it actually mean? What, what's its significance? What, you know, why is it actually there? But the simple fact of the matter is it's probably best not even kind of going down that road, simply sort of saying, well, it, there's a bear and that's the end of it really is perhaps slightly more kind of uh, conducive to enjoying the films of Brunwell. To some, this will no doubt annoy. I suppose whimsy is an acquired cinematic taste, and I certainly found myself when I was getting into the films of Brunel, there was a, a kind of a period of having to kind of tune in to the way in which he makes films. But when you sort of do tune in, I think there is a kind of a great deal that you can get out of his work. Belle de Jour, made in 1967, I think is a kind of a good entry point for Brunwell. And I think it is a film which is as kind of radical today as it must have been then. The story follows a young bride, Savine, by, played by Catherine Deneuve, who is married to a Paris doctor called Pierre. The young couple live in an affluent apartment and all is seemingly well, yet Savine harbours a secret. She fantasises about, about sadomasochistic encounters with Pierre, yet cannot tell him for fear of what he might think. One day a sleazy colleague of Pierre, Mr Husson, who himself fancies Savine, tells her of a brothel he knows run by a Madame Nice. Savine is at first appalled by the thought of women selling themselves, but soon finds herself at Madame Nice, where she becomes belle de jour for the afternoon having sex with any man that walks in through the door. Of course her secret cannot be kept for long, but for Savine, Belle is a release and one she simply cannot let go of. Because of its subject matter, you may think that Belle du Jour is going to be a kind of a sleazy, sexy film with loads of nudity. Indeed, I think these kind of assumptions quickly go out the window because there's no real nudity to speak of in the film. And it is why I think that certainly audiences at the time, some of them, people went to watch the film thinking it was going to be this kind of... Uh, I suppose kind of soft porn extravaganza were quite disappointed and a lot of people who uh, especially kind of when I was at university who had having never ever seen the film talked about it as if it was this kind of um, French new wave porn festival and they actually saw it were kind of like well uh, kind of made these kind of ridiculous claims that they'd kind of thought about it was the wrong film or something like that but I personally think it is a captivating film and one which I've certainly gone back to many times over the years and each time that I watch it I think I kind of appreciate it even more. Its opening sequence is an absolute 
masterstroke of cinema and ranks in my mind as probably one of the best ways of introducing uh, a character and a situation. There is no way I can really talk about this opening without telling you this anecdotal story about a friend of mine. He was with his girlfriend and they were asking each other about what their sexual fantasies were. And my friend gave his, which I can't remember what it was now, and he then got to his girlfriend and asked her what her sexual fantasy was. And what she actually said horrified him and I think actually kind of almost ruined their relationship because her fantasy began on the high seas on in the 1800s where she was a virginal daughter of a Spanish aristocrat being taken back from America to Spain when suddenly on the horizon a pirate ship appeared and quickly the pirates attacked the boat, killed the crew kidnapped her and took her back to the pirate ship where she was taken downstairs to the galley, strapped to a cannon and then had group sex with all the dirty pirates. Now my friend was absolutely horrified and appalled and when I was able to stop myself from laughing at the genuine look of her on his face, I kind of realised that he was being extremely naive because Men don't like to admit, perhaps, that women are as dirty-minded and as sexually aware as they are. We don't like to admit, perhaps, that a woman can enjoy and crave sex as much as men. And I, it was something I kind of alluded to in the last episode, actually, when I talked about design for living. And what this opening scene does is it completely, for want of a better word, fucks with the male idea of a woman's role in sex. And the, the, scene, the film begins with Savine and Pierre on a horse-drawn carriage when suddenly Pierre turns on Savine and she, he gets the two coachmen to drag her off into the woods where she is strung up and whipped and suddenly we cut to Sabine and Pierre's bedroom where Pierre comes out of the bathroom and he asks Sabine what she's actually thinking about and she kind of rather nonchalantly says oh I was just thinking about us and it, you suddenly become aware that this wasn't any sort of kind of actual event it was actually her fantasy and then the next reveal is that Pierre and Sabine sleep in separate beds and clearly what you have there is this huge division between them and you kind of you don't need to kind of it's, it's strange because you look at Pierre and you kind of know exactly the type of man he is I'm sure he's a very nice guy he's very kind of clean cut but he sleeps in a separate bed from his wife whom he clearly has absolutely no idea what it is that goes through her mind all of this happens within about five minutes and it's everything you need to know about this film I think can kind of almost be contained within that the fact that you know how is Pierre ever going to understand what Savine wants and of course you know how is Savine going to kind of reconcile these fantasies with her real life 
sexual desire in Brunel's films never quite manifests itself in a straightforward fashion. But, but what do I even mean by straightforward? Because I think the term is so objective, and I rather think Brunel in particular is kind of mocking the kind of standard interpretation of what sex and sexual desire should be like, i.e. the fact that you know, it's kind of one of these things which is just this this thing that should never really be spoken about and the less kind of explicit is the better. There has always been a fascination in popular culture with sex scandals. They are really a kind of a tabloid dream. I've always been completely uninterested in these types of things. If someone wants to get dressed up as a Nazi and be whipped, then frankly that is their business and no one else's. And yes, the kind of the mock outrage and the disgust feigned by the media seems to be kind of genuine, that like they're actually making this kind of actual moral statement. But I think it actually hides a kind of rather more matter-of-fact truth. They report it because they know that deep down people are fascinated with it to a degree because, like it or not, there is, I suppose, in all of us, a kind of a pervert waiting to get out. And we like to kind of read about these things because it's, it's not so much perhaps that we identify with it, but it's because it sort of taps into this kind of uh, voyeuristic side of us. It's why in the body of Brunel's work you will find hints of incest, paedophilia, necrophilia, sadomasochism, rape and good old-fashioned affairs between married couples. Now, does this mean that Brunel is some kind of disturbed individual or some kind of deviant? I would contest no, and I think it is all in keeping with the absurdist nature of his surrealist leanings. Surrealism by nature does not demand nor is really bothered by its audience trying to decipher meaning or come to neat conclusions about it. Instead it thrives on the idiosyncratic and whilst Freud tried to find meaning in the seemingly forbidden, surrealism in the hands of Bonnell brings the apparent latent to the forefront. Are we supposed to kind of identify with Savine? Does Brunel want us to nod our heads in knowing approval as she lies in a state of sexual ecstasy having been, as we assumed, beaten by one of her clients? The answer is really not that clear, but what is evident is that Savine is presented as a person who enjoys this sadomasochistic side. She is simply getting what she wants, and really, how can we possibly disagree with that? We might not approve of the method and how she goes about it, but who are really we to say that anyway? You know, it's, it's something like, I suppose, you know, is it hypocritical? And I, I will be kind of going down this road in a minute when I talk about moment of truth, but I, I'm a proclaimed animal lover, yet I eat meat almost every day of some variety. Does that make me a raging hypocrite? Am I even in a position to say that I'm an animal lover when I will happily stuff dead animal down my face every day? I think one of the things that kind of Brunel does, which really kind of interested me and kind of ties into this idea of kind of Savine living out these fantasies, is that the world of prostitution isn't presented as being particularly seedy. When Savine becomes Belle, she is not forced to do it. She's doing it of her own free will. And the thing we find is that she's clearly not doing it for the money, which we see her lifestyle, you know, she has no kind of 
or clearly didn't have any sort of um, financial hardship. And I think Brunoir is kind of, he's not daft enough to suggest that all girls who work in prostitution do it for the fun of it. The other girls who work with Madame Manice clearly do do it for money. One of them makes reference to the fact that her boyfriend is out of work and therefore that she has to, although he is kind of quite understanding as her having to do it. And the brothel itself is far from a kind of a squalid dive that you might expect. Appearance-wise, it could just be another apartment. There are no signs outside um, to suggest that it's actually a brothel. And inside, it, it's a fairly kind of ordinary domestic environment. I'm not sure whether or not, because having never visited a brothel before, if this is kind of a, a an accurate representation of what they're like. Is, you know, kind of well kind of having a crack at this idea that, you know, that we just assume that we hear the word brothel and we just imagine kind of heroin-addicted skanks kind of lorruping around waiting for the next guy to come in to screw. Instead, kind of Brunel kind of changes that. It's a fairly jovial atmosphere. The kind of, uh, the clients are on good terms with Madden and Nias. She always kind of pours them a drink. The, when the girls aren't working, they're sitting around playing cards, just kind of talking like normal people. And overall, I suppose, Belle de Jour isn't a kind of seedy film at all. In fact, it's one of the kind of the, the brightest of all of Brunel's work. Uh, Cinematographer Sashi Verney, I think it's, it's almost, um, it's, it's not technicolour, but it's certainly a very vibrant film. And the costumes were done by Yves Saint Laurent, and it has this kind of real chic to it that you, I simply wasn't really kind of, that I, I suppose I hadn't really kind of noticed to this degree before because of the kind of the, the, the new transfer and things like that, which I'll talk about at the end of this, this review. But by sort of not going down the route of presenting prostitution as a seedy, kind of disgusting world, I think you're forced to think about Savine. A lot more and why she's actually doing it and you know is she going to be able to have the life with Pierre that she has to have in secret and I think the other thing which I really kind of admire about this is that Brunel doesn't kind of just make Savine sort of turn up one day and become a prostitute he obviously understands the fact that her character has to make this very, I suppose, brave decision and go and work with Madame Anais. So that's why there is some indecision on her part. And she even gets um, a scene in where she goes up to Pierre before she decides to go back to Madame Anais and work there. That where she tries to almost tell him or make him understand her even more. And he kind of brushes her aside. And it's that moment, that kind of inciting incident, that that's when she decides she's going to go and decide to become Belle de Jour and become a prostitute. And she isn't kind of, I suppose, able to simply go and work at the brothel and get into it straight away. One of her earliest clients is a person much like herself who likes to be dominate, well, likes to have the illusion that he is being dominated and enjoys sadomasochistic encounters and Savine cannot do it to begin with she doesn't really know how to react with this person because obviously she must be able to reckon recognize something in him that's in her but one of the other girls has to actually get called in and Savine kind of watches through a peephole and you can tell she is very very unsure what to make of it and she, as her kind of confidence grows and she is able to kind of uh begin to exert some kind of, well, I suppose, confidence in what she's doing, she begins to really kind of enjoy her life at the brothel. And that's the thing, the brothel is not an anchor. She's not there for any other reason than she wants to go there. She, it is for her an escape and 
a release from her life. For some, I think this may be quite uncomfortable. I know kind of like, I suppose, perhaps even, I, I don't, you don't need to be kind of a particularly conservative person to find this objectionable. You know, a woman, women in cinema are seldom this sexually aware. And I think it's a bit like, I suppose, when um, in the film Bruno, when Sasha Baron Cohen kind of lampoons the perception of gay sex when him and his boyfriend Diesel are going at it. It's completely and utterly ridiculous, but it kind of plays straight into the minds of every kind of idiot homophobe out there. I remember when the um, Boyzone singer, Stephen Gately, died. I can't remember the journalist's name in the Daily Mail, but she leapt to some kind of conclusions that, you know, Gately and his boyfriend were involved in these kind of nightly seedy bondage, and it was kind of a, a real kind of issue within kind of homosexual relationships. And it was completely disgraceful, really, kind of character assassination based on absolutely nothing. But the fact of the matter is... It's the fact that women in film are so often portrayed as being the passive, almost dominated partner in a sexual union. I guess, you know, I wonder if Criterion kind of did, um, I, don't, I wonder if it is a coincidence that this film has followed um, Design for Living. Perhaps it was, I don't know, I kind of, uh, the, the people at Criterion were kind of thinking of these two films as being kind of uh, thematically linked and put them out together. I, I don't know, but they do seem to, I think, share um, a lot of similarities in how the women in them are portrayed sexually. In many respects, the film actually kind of has two villains. Um, the first is Mr. Huson, who kind of, he makes kind of a, a, a few passes at Savine. He even turns up at the um, apartment. Um, we're kind of not quite sure of his motives for doing so. But I, I kind of, I, I, when I was watching it, I, I sort of found myself really kind of hating Pierre because on the one hand, yeah, he is a very good husband and he obviously kind of, he obviously dotes on her and loves her very much, but he just really doesn't understand her at all. And he comes close to being able to kind of work out what it is that she wants. Because in one scene, he actually sort of says to her, you know, um, when, when they have sex, that he actually feels like he's forcing her a little bit. And you're thinking, come on, Pierre, just kind of, you know, why, why don't you actually ask her, you know, outright and be, a, you know, and be a little bit kind of braver in that territory. But having gone through Brunel's work, Pierre belongs to a class of people that he kind of despises. And there's a scene right at the beginning where um, he's with Mr. Husson and Pierre and um, Savine. And Husson says some kind of like idiotic statement that he actually, uh, he pities the working classes because they don't have fur coats to wear. And kind of Pierre sort of laughs along with it. And, you just sort of think that these people are complete arseholes. And in Brunel's film, and I, I got to say it again, but the bourgeoisie or the upper middle class, or whatever, they're normally presented as a complete and utter load of idiots. Pierre will never be able to understand Savine because he's quite frankly too ordinary and too, I suppose, repressed to really ever accept the fact that she's anything else other than his loyal, beautiful wife. A slightly kind of like more melodramatic film, perhaps you would have Savine doing this um, to kind of I don't know cover up his debts or something like that, and you know it's a, it you know it would all kind of come together, and uh, you know at the end of the film Pierre would forgive her and they'd move on. But you know, 
That's not what this is all about. This is about a young woman trying to find confidence in her life. And I guess the kind of the question that you really have to ask is what is the motivating factor for Savine to even do this? And I don't think the answer is particularly straightforward. There are a few fantasy scenes during the film um, involving Pierre and Savine. Uh, Mr. Husson joins them fun as well in a particularly brutal one where they start throwing cow shit at her. But why, you know, does she even kind of go down this route? And there is a scene in the film in which we see her as a young girl being molested by what I think is actually, it's like a tradesman, I think it might even be a plumber or something like that. And another scene we see her um, not being able to take part in a communion. Now the implication I think is that because she has been spoiled for want of a better word, she is not worthy in the eye of God. And religion is clearly a massive issue for Bunuel. It's not hard to see that uh, why I suppose the Surrealists found it slightly ridiculous with its doctrines and rules and certainly his film The Milky Way is the most directly confrontational um, with regard to religion that I've seen and it is certainly you know uh, a an element that, that kind of comes into all his work. Effectively Savine has been ostracised by God and is therefore free to live or at least act out her latent desires. It's a quite uncomfortable position to be in. I don't know about the legitimacy of these scenes um, and you know are these in fact just fantasies on top of the fantasies are they kind of part of a kind of a more complex um, psychological state I don't really know and again it, it's a very sort of uh, quite hard to um, to say categorically what we're to make of this because on the one hand you could say that she is the victim of this abuse and that her kind of wanting to work in this brothel and be humiliated is, I suppose, you know, a byproduct of this abuse. But on the other hand, it you could sort of say this abuse has kind of liberated her in a way, which I, and I'm not even comfortable kind of going down that road. But I guess you find yourself moving into that that trap of interpretation that I spoke about at the beginning of this review. But overall, I think that Brunwell's direction in the film is absolutely superb. And I guess there is this kind of building sense of dread throughout it, because you know that at some stage that Pierre is going to have to find out. And the kind of the moment this happens is when Savine starts seeing a young gangster called Marcel, who becomes more and more obsessed with her and eventually um, decides to confront Savine when she decides to stop working at the brothel. And I don't know, the film feels a little bit rushed in this respect. Um, it sort of, it, it changes kind of um, gear quite quickly in the final third. But when the moment does come and the inevitable happens, Brunel doesn't neatly tie up the film it is very much left open to multiple interpretations and it's I think one of those endings where I've gone back to it on a number of occasions and I've tried to kind of really put in the ending that I want how do I really want this and this film to end this story to end and how would I kind of want 
Zavine and Pierre to go on in later life. And it's it's a strange one because it's in a way, I think, Sabine has behaved in a way which is kind of deplorable. You know, she has cheated on her husband, you know, multiple times, but in another way you sort of think good honour for doing this. And I, I sort of see her as this kind of like feminist icon, I suppose, kind of just doing what she wants to do. But overall it is a magnificent film. I would probably say it is one of my favourites of all time. I can it it's really a very entertaining film as well. I, I think when you kind of have this kind of preconception of art house cinema, I suppose, um, but well, Sunny, I think he can, he can he can typify and I think even exceed that expectation. But in this case as well, I think he just shows what a, a really entertaining, great filmmaker that he is. And it's, it's it's interesting as well to watch kind of Deneuve in the film because you know I've seen loads of her films before and she, she was you know she you know, before this I think she might have done the Umbrellas of Sherbrooke before this where she's kind of which is a a musical and every single word of dialogue in the film is actually sung but it's this kind of glossy technicolor kind of happy-go-lucky film well actually i suppose it actually isn't a happy lucky go film it does kind of go um i suppose it's a french musical so i i, I guess you can imagine it kind of uh, has a certain edge to it but you know seeing her in this film playing this uh playing belle du jour it really is you get an idea of what a great actress that she was uh, or is sorry and it certainly made me want to go and kind of seek out more of her work because um, you know, roles like this, I guess, must be quite um, strange um, for an actor at that, at that time to kind of take on. And I know she was a little bit disappointed. When I kind of said there wasn't much nudity in it, um, there was there is one scene where you see her kind of bum and stuff, but she was a little bit disappointed with Bruno apparently for that. But it's certainly um, a fantastic performance. I'm not sure if it got kind of any kind of awards recognition, but uh, definitely... A very interesting and complex character that Deneuve just seems to nail and she does go from being this type of um, I suppose pretty housewife to a kind of very confident young woman by the end of the film but overall I think this is a pretty much the best um, presentation of Belle de Jour I have ever seen I have seen the film projected before but I actually got hold of the standard edition of the DVD. Now, a Blu-ray has come out, um, Region B, which I haven't actually seen. But I have a setting on my television, which uh, I've got a, T, um, a Panasonic TV, a 50-inch one. It's got a setting, a THX setting on it. And I had it switched on that. And honestly, if someone had told me it was a Blu-ray, I would have believed them. It is that good. Um, like I said, it's a very bright and colourful film. And the costumes especially really kind of pop off the screen. Sound-wise, it's just a, a mono soundtrack, but you know, obviously you have to kind of think about time when it was made and things like that. But the extras as well, there is it's just a single disc edition. There is a commentary um, by Michael Wood, who wrote the BFI film classic book on Belle Jour. And I've got to be honest, I didn't, I wasn't overly keen on this commentary track. Um, I, oh God, I'm just, the reason why was I found um, that Wood was a little bit kind of, um, I don't know, I, oh, I've got to be quite careful, uh, I suppose, excuse my words quite carefully here, but he came across as being a little bit smug. Uh, a lot of his commentary seems to be taken up with um, just translating what the characters were saying. I sort of think you don't really need that. And he was he's obviously a you know, Bruno expert. He's obviously met the guy a few times and things like that. But there was this kind of like little kind of like knowing little laughs along at some of the little kind of the jokes and things like that in it. And I did find it a little bit annoying. Um, there is a a new um, interview with um, 
a writer and sexual politics activist, Susie Bright, and film scholar Linda Williams, which I did find really interesting, actually. Um, certainly, I think they probably talk about a lot in a lot more uh, intelligence than I have, the kind of the, the sexual politics of the film. Mm. Um, there's a new interview with screenwriter Jean-Claude Curie, which I really enjoyed. Very interesting. Um, and it does also come with a fantastic booklet featuring an essay by Melissa Anderson and a 1970s interview with director Louis Bunuel, which was fascinating read. Um, if you do kind of like, you know, get into his films, the Criterion Collection, I think I've got about 10 of his films out at the moment. Some of them have been um, deleted from the, they are no longer available from the Criterion Collection, but um, I can definitely recommend checking them out in no matter, I suppose, what release they come out of. There are some, but if you do manage to get hold of the Criterion or rent them or something like that, there's some fantastic di uh, extras on those discs. But overall, um, this is a fantastic presentation of the film. Um, it's hard to, I mean, I'd like, if, if someone has got hold of the Criterion Blu-ray, please do let me know. I know the review on Blu-ray.com was quite positive, but yeah, let me know your thoughts on it. Okay, so next on to spine number 594 and the most highly anticipated release of the month, Ishiro Honda's 1954 film, Godzilla. ゴジラを。now I have a minor confession to make in that I can't couldn't actually remember going into this whether I'd actually seen Godzilla before and I think it's because it's become, it's become so ingrained in popular culture that I kind of just assumed I had. And obviously so many scenes from it are so iconic and kind of recognisable that I, I, I just, I, I don't think I'd ever really sort of sat down and watched it from beginning to end. It was probably on on television before and I hadn't really kind of paid attention to it or anything like that. But I think I'm getting quite nostalgic for university in this episode because I remember at uni there were so many people who used to rave about it all the time and they were kind of the hipster types yeah. and I, I sort of wonder now in kind of retrospect whether or not they kind of had seen it or it was just because you know it was cool to like Godzilla I don't really know but the, str the strange thing was that one of the first things I thought when the film ended was I was instantly began to think about Roland Emmerich which is always a pretty um, bad thing to do anyway but 
And I, I suddenly realised why his version of Godzilla failed so utterly miserable. Because quite frankly, I don't think he got Godzilla. Now, the story is, I suppose, may, may seem at first quite easy. A giant monster, awoken by nuclear testing, attacks Japan. However, Honda's film has far more going on it than you first may actually think. And I'm not just talking about plot, I'm talking about big, weighty themes. Now, the story begins with a Japanese fishing boat that is sunk off the coast of Odo Island. When another ship is sent to find out what happened, the same thing happens. A village elder claims the sinking is the work of Godzilla, a beast from the depths. Archaeologist Koshi Yanami is dispatched to the island to find out what is actually going on and sees some huge, giant, radioactive footprints. And when the beast turns up, Yanami heads back to the mainland to try and convince the powers that be that action needs to be taken immediately. Only his views on what to do with Godzilla don't go down quite as expected. He's all up for keeping the, uh, the beast alive and trying to learn from it. However, the government has other ideas and orders the navy to destroy it. The government is unwilling to pin blame on anyone, and although I think it's never mentioned, we're fairly sure that the superpower that has awoken this beast is in fact America. Meanwhile, Yanni's daughter, Emiko, is trying to tell her scientist fiancé, Sarazara, that she's in fact in love with another man, boat captain Ogata. But Sarazara may in fact have the key to defeating Godzilla. Will Emiko tell him the truth, and can the burden of unleashing his new weapon force Yozara to allow Godzilla to continue on his rampage? If you are looking for a fun, jaunty monster film, then Godzilla is not the film for you. I think perhaps one of the reasons why it has stood the test of time is that Godzilla invites, and indeed warrants, a great deal more intellectual debate and exploration. I've got to admit, when, I, when it was announced it was going to be in the Criterion Collection, I was a little bit kind of dubious to begin with. I sort of thought, well, it's clearly going to be a big seller. This is clearly one which people are going to buy in their droves. And I sort of thought, you know, yeah, good on them. You know, they've, got, they've had films before, like the kind of The Rock and Armageddon in there. And I sort of thought this, this was going to be in the same vein. But actually, it wasn't at all. And I, I really, I kind of got quite involved in the kind of the politics of it as well. Now, I suppose you have to kind of look at Japan and the history, certainly the history of the of the previous 10 years, perhaps even going back a little bit further, actually, I understand the kind of the Japanese kind of empire expansion began in the 30s. But, you know, it was a country that had literally been bombed and beaten into submission. And it was this, I suppose, surrender that had kind of redefined the very core of the nation's psyche, i.e. that Japan would never surrender. And when the Emperor Hirohito, who is, in all respect, a god on earth, spoke to these people for the first time, an entire society realised that their lives were going to change forever. Now, obviously, there is a very unique reason why Japan has a place in history. Obviously, there are, there are many, I suppose, but one of the most, I, I guess, um, iconic is that it is the only nation on Earth that has had nuclear weapons dropped on it as an act of aggression. Now, 
I think it's just worth kind of mentioning this for a moment because there's a few things to kind of think about. Number one is that the nuclear bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, these attacks obviously obliterated this, the towns and they killed many, many thousands of people. However, in terms of kind of the casualties, there were more people killed in the firebombing attacks by the Americans. But obviously it's the kind of the iconic nature of the kind of, you know, the mushroom cloud rising. And I know it's a slightly perhaps controversial thing to say, but I am a, I, I suppose I, 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 I do kind of have a very much an active interest in the history of World War Two, And I would actually contest that the dropping of the nuclear weapons was absolutely necessary in ending the war when it did. Now, there is, has been, um, I suppose, a lot of conjecture since that the Japanese were actually suing for peace um, way before the Americans decided to use weapons. I'm not entirely sure how how much I believe these claims as, as, as to how far they were going to um, try and broker peace, because, um, you know, certainly the fighting up until then against the Japanese was absolutely horrific. And one of the reasons why I felt, well, why I do feel that the bombs were used for a good reason was that the Allies would have had to have invaded mainland Japan. Now, if you think that on tiny little islands per square mile, the casualty rate was running into the thousands. Imagine what it would have been like had they had had to invade Japan, not only for the Allies' sake, but for the Japanese people as well. You know, Japan is a mountainous country. It would have been an absolute... I think, a war of annihilation to conquer the islands. And the bombs, although horrific and although obviously many, many thousands of people died, in innocent people as well, you know, these weren't military targets, so to speak, they were civilians that were the bit died and suffered long afterwards. I think you have to look at this evil as being a necessary one in order to have actually ended the war when it did. However, the event has clearly been reflected in Japanese culture ever since. And you know, I'm amazed how many kind of um, films I've seen and anime series really that have a, a kind of an apocalyptic um, subtext to them. Either you know, it's a society that has kind of moved on from an atomic bomb or something like that, or the fact that you know how this event has really changed people's perspective. Now, I guess this would make Japan in a unique position to speak out about the horrors of nuclear weapons. I think it's quite an interesting kind of aside that Dr. Oppenheimer, who worked on the American bomb, he actually thought that after World War II, people would see what had happened in Japan and say, oh my God, that's absolutely awful, and not pursue any more nuclear weapons. However, he was completely and utterly wrong because all that happened was that not only did the Americans build bomb, the Soviets began building them, uh, uh, sorry, the Great Britain, France, and obviously what they were doing was trying to build bigger and bigger bombs. And it just seems utterly ludicrous, doesn't it, to think that, you know, you have these things that can destroy the world and cause all this suffering and pain, and yet you try and build big, more of them and even more powerful ones. So I think it's interesting then that Godzilla is a film which kind of tackles nuclear weapons in, I suppose, the best possible way that only kind of science fiction and fantasy can actually do because in that kind of after the war in the waters around Japan there were all manner of nuclear tests being conducted and when a Japanese fishing boat the Lucky Dragon number no. five got too close to one of these tests the crew were subject to fallout that uh, was caused by the blast now 
When they got back, they had suffered all kinds of horrific burns and would some of them would eventually die because of the radiation poisoning. And it really began, I suppose, an international sort of outcry about what was actually going on. Now, the Americans did actually pay the crew two and a half million dollars in compensation. But I can imagine it would be quite a, a difficult kind of time for Japan, really in how it brokered this kind of issue internationally, because would you sort of think that Japan, I suppose, its international standing would have been massively damaged by the war? And don't forget, it was actually occupied um, by the Americans for a number of years. And I guess it was sort of finding its feet again and changing from um, society in a way, was changing a great deal. So how vocal could they be? Could they really come out and kind of criticise the Americans? There was a bit of um, political posturing going on, but I think what a better way, really, of, I suppose, highlighting this issue than doing it in a form of mass entertainment, which exactly what um, Godzilla is. Now, Godzilla is released in the film and mutated because of nuclear testing. And like I said before, America's never really named, but I think you can pretty clearly tell that it is the Americans who have actually release them on. So there's even a reference to infected tuna, which was a real issue um, because of the waters around the testing grounds were so badly uh, affected. Yet this is not just, I suppose, a hit piece against superpower dominance and arrogance. I think it's also critical of the arms race in general that has kind of what that was engulfing the world and the kind of the threat of abusing scientists. Now, Science may have given us the microwave and the smartphone, but it's also given us mustard gas and weapons so powerful they could wipe man off the face of the planet. And I suppose it's, you know, there's always going to be an arms race going on because there will always be, well, for the foreseeable future anyway, a kind of world ruled by division. And I think kind of Godzilla taps into this mindset of madness. The, you know, Godzilla is clearly archetypal in its meaning. It is a literal monster, a monster that has been created and released by man. It lays dormant, of course, but it is always there just waiting to be released. Now, when this is kind of knee-jerk reaction to destroy it, Yeno believes that in the madness it could still help man. And although I kind of don't agree with what he's saying, I think his kind of passive, pacifist voice is kind of really kind of worth noting because Everyone else in the film is just so focused on destruction and he's actually kind of looking at the situation to see that there could be some some good coming of it. You know, and Sarazar as well is he's deeply concerned because he creates this new weapon and I think it's fair to say that the weapon he creates is absolutely ridiculous in the kind of... Um, it has absolutely no sort of scientific, um, I suppose, uh, reality behind it whatsoever, but... He's clearly absolutely massively conflicted about what he is going to do and how he will be remembered. And in the midst of all the kind of the destruction and the chaos that is being wrought by Godzilla, he is still so, I guess, disturbed by what it might actually happen if he lets this weapon come out that, you know, he, the, uh, many, many, many. I suppose thousands of people die whilst he kind of deliberates what to do about it. And this is, you know, it comes back to the kind of the idea that 
Godzilla wasn't what I was expecting at all. I thought it was going to be this big, dumb film with this, you know, everyone scrabbling around to try and destroy it, which is, you know, it's what you normally get, isn't it, when you have these types of disaster films. Everyone just sits around, like, scratching their heads, you know, trying weapons, and you know, none of them work, and it's up to science to think, oh, God, you know, going back to bloody Roland Emmerich and Independence Day, just a quick aside there. This is the kind of fucking stupid thing I hate about those types of films. He uses, what is it? Windows 95 or something to put a virus on um, the uh, the alien mothership. You know, is that something that's universal across space? Is Bill Gates that powerful that alien races use his operating system for their for their systems? Utterly stupid. And I suppose, in a way, the uh, the solution to the Godzilla problem and this is equally kind of dumb but at least there's a bit of kind of weight and a bit of intelligence behind the actual kind of implications of just running off and actually using it and it's that kind of you know it's the it's the it's the voice of reason the kind of the you know Japan was I suppose in a way a an experiment for weapons of mass destruction and I get you know I suppose and like I've said, you know, if you think about it quite kind of harshly, it was a kind of the lesser of two evils in a way. But still, you know, um, it's very easy for me to say that having not lived through something as absolutely terrifying as that. And, you know, the 50s were, you know, I always think about it as kind of like wholesome image of the 50s. But, you know, the kind of the natural kind of conclusion of the 50s was the Cuban Missile Crisis. And, you know, how absolutely horrific that was my grandfather was telling me about it not so long ago actually and he, he said he was coming home from work one day and it was right at the, the height of the crisis and he looked back at London and he was almost on the brink of tears with worry of what was going to happen to him and his family and I, you know, how horrendous really you know these times must have been you know just think you know just having that kind of very real threat there However, going back to the film um, Godzilla, I was kind of really impressed with Honda's direction as well, because in the truest sense, he doesn't just kind of throw Godzilla out there right away. We have to kind of wait before we see him. We get these tantalising glimpses of the monster, the huge footprints, and we get this kind of idea of the scale and the destruction that he's capable of causing, and the fact that he has this kind of radioactive, uh, I suppose veneer on him and things like that and when we when we do kind of get to see him I know that you know by today's standard I suppose that um Godzilla might look a little bit kind of hokey but I genuinely thought it was uh it's still a, a fairly impressive creation and sometimes in films like this when the kind of the, the monster starts kicking off and destroying things there is a tendency I suppose for you to kind of lose perspective of the kind of the damage that's being done and Honda I think really sort of uh, plays up the human tragedy there's a really sad moment where there's a uh, a mother cradling her child and she's sort of saying yeah we'll be, we'll be long with we belong we'll be with daddy again soon or something like that and you know after the attacks he kind of goes into hospitals and it's a really bloody horrible affair and it I, I was I was really surprised that he didn't try and kind of make this into a jaunty sort of jolly happy film but i think obviously you the the star of godzilla is obviously godzilla himself and you know it, it, it was just a man in the suit and i say just a man in the suit because i can't remember what was it who was the director who who said that um at the end of the day monster films just are just uh, eventually just a man in a suit and yeah you know they probably are but i think the thing about godzilla in this is that the effect is 
it it does look dated of course it does um but i was moved and i was i suppose invested in the effect which really is all you need i wasn't i didn't feel like i was being taken out of the film i, I didn't sit there thinking oh god how fake and stupid does that look i was you know, i was there i bought it i kind of i went along with it and you know obviously the thing about effects as well is is that it's the effects that you don't notice um which are slightly more um, impressive like there's lots of forced perspective work and overlaying the image and it, it's all fairly seamless and i really kind of salute honda and obviously yeah as it's kind of shown on one of this the the real kind of effort that went into creating these effects but the one thing i i, I do sort of like about godzilla is that there is a real sense that he is enjoying himself as he kind of comes marauding across tokyo Roland Emmerich's Godzilla kind of runs around and he kind of smashes through things and darts off and runs off. But this Godzilla moves slowly, like he's sizing things up. You know, we have obviously we have the obligatory scene where the military try and stop him and he just completely wipes them off, wipes them out of the way. And they they build this massive electric fence around Tokyo, which he just kind of like walks through as if to say, you know, don't even fucking insult me with this pathetic attempt. But it is, I think, quite interesting because Godzilla was actually viewed by audiences as the almost kind of the hero of the film, dishing out some revenge to the powers that be for the disaster wars to war. People were actually, you know, celebrating when he was kind of marauding across Tokyo. And I, I guess in a way it's like a kind of like a, it's a bit like The Tempest in, um, sorry, William Shakespeare's The Tempest and uh, The Forbidden Planet, isn't it? When you have that kind of the, the id being manifesting itself as a huge monster in a way kind of Godzilla is this kind of national he's an id on a national scale as it were and you know, the surprising thing is that Honda uses deliberately evocative images such as wooden buildings being on fire now the preferred weapon of choice by the allies when they were bombing Tokyo and the other Japanese cities was to use firebombs for the very simple reason that most of the buildings were made of wood. Now, obviously, it just decimated vast areas of urban Japan. And um, if it, I, you can, I can definitely recommend watching the, the anime film, The Grave of the Fireflies. Um, have your hankies ready for that one because it is a... Yeah, it really kind of gets in there when it comes to what these firebombs and the damage that they actually wrought. But, you know, how often can you say that you have a kind of a disaster film where the destruction is serving a kind of an almost cultural purpose? And the thing that happens at the end of Godzilla, and I, I think it's fairly safe to say that you probably know the story. If you don't, anyway, you know, um, stop listening now, watch it and come back. But obviously... Godzilla dies and it isn't a moment of triumph it's not a moment where you know the kind of the, the young couple turn and embrace and everyone's high-fiving it themselves there's this kind of look of just absolute kind of just crestfallenness about the uh, the event this isn't something which is a good thing it's you know it's a complete tragedy that this monster has been kind of woken up and kind of sent on a rampage when you know there was no need for it ever to have occurred and it has occurred because of man and i think it's interesting to note that japan doesn't cry for help in this film it's not an international effort that brings down godzilla it is themselves that do it and i i, I guess on the one hand it's a symbol of a nation that is regaining 
it's confidence. And on the other, I, it's the fact that, you know, would the other superpowers just kind of instantly break out the big weapons against Godzilla? And obviously you have all this kind of moralising whether or not, you know, they should use these this new, new design weapon to do it. And I think it kind of says a lot about the Japanese psyche of the time and and that inner reflection as to the lessons of the war and how they can kind of be used to and how they feel about the post-war world. Come the end of Godzilla, I was actually a little depressed and it kind of hit me how this film is still relevant today. You know, you, you look at what's going on in the Middle East at the moment with Iran, you know, trying to build a bomb and things like that. And it's just an issue which has never really sort of been kind of resolved or has ever kind of been made any more positive. And I know there's kind of been various kind of nuclear weapons reduction programs, but really they're kind of fairly meaningless because you know each side still has enough weapons to cause absolute chaos and complete destruction. So yeah, but really we haven't come very far since Godzilla. And I think it's kind of it's it's easy to dismiss it on this basis as being a kind of just a kind of a disaster event film. But I think it's a lot more than that. And I really do think it is something which I think it's a film that truly deserves its place in the Criterion Collection. As I said, I was a little bit kind of um, dubious as to whether or not it, you know, it was just there to kind of um, sell a few Blu-rays. I know it's actually got the Criterion website and I think the Blu-ray is actually sold out at the moment. So I should imagine you know, it has been a pretty good seller. But other than that as well, it's actually a technical marvel. And, you know, Honda and the kind of the uh, special effects team do a fantastic job of creating Godzilla and making it a kind of a believable uh, film. And yeah, I think it's going to be around for a lot longer. Now, getting on to the features, there is two versions of the film. There's the original Godzilla, and on the second disc, there is the American um, re-release of the film, which is called Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Um, I wouldn't really, I mean, you could, I suppose you could watch King of Monsters for a kind of like, you know, uh, complete purposes. I wasn't particularly keen on it. Just stick with Godzilla. I think it's a far better film. Um, King of Monsters has an American actor putting it and there's lots of kind of additional stuff which is completely pointless. Um, it doesn't add anything. I think it just detracts from the, the original Japanese version. But both films come with a commentary by film historian David Callett and he is what, what really one of those kind of, um, I suppose, fans of the film who he gets he's so enthusiastic about it and he talks about lots of things that I have and I, I was quite relieved actually because when I listened to his commentary I think he was kind of echoing a lot of things that I was thinking about how it isn't just this, this disposable silly monster film there's a lot more going on it than that it's also really fascinating him hearing talk about the actors that were involved because you know everyone in it was kind of um you know these weren't just kind of uh nobody's z-list has brought in they you know they lots of them worked with kind of like um Akira Kurosawa before and people like that and it was a kind of it was a real prestige production, which is one of the things you kind of find. It was taken very seriously. It was a huge blockbuster at the time in Japan, and uh, it, yeah, his 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 enthusiasm for it comes across very self-deprecating as well. And I think it's just a kind of um, a really good fun listen. But you know, I, I, in fact, if you, I would recommend actually perhaps watching King of Monsters with his commentary on because he really does kind of um, he he kind of highlights lots of the kind of the differences and why he thinks that the um the original japanese version is a lot better there are some interviews with the special effects technicians um 
all very interesting, some good behind the scenes stuff, um, a feature detailing, Godzilla's the photo effects and um, also perhaps one of my favourite features on it was a interview with Japanese film critic Taido Sato which was really quite interesting because it talks about the kind of the cultural relevance of the film and what it meant to people at the time and it, it really I, I I was pretty fascinated but also as well there is a kind of a, a video essay which is called The Unlucky Dragon which was about the Lucky Dragon uh, fishing boat that strayed too close to the testing grounds um very scary you know it's very well it's tragic actually watching it and um it's good as well i think um these types of special features because they might not be um you know just about the film they definitely give a lot of context to it and why it was made but overall this is a fantastic uh package um i actually got hold of the blu-ray copy of this so um i can't really kind of uh, comment on what the DVD's like, but um, TVD, the DVD sorry, is actually a two-disc edition, the uh, the Blu-ray is just the one disc, but fantastic packaging as well on this one, and I know there was a lot of um, hoo-ha leading up to it because of the, the image that the Criterion decided to use for Godzilla, and there were some people, it's bloody fanboys again coming out and saying, you know, that's not how it should look and etc, etc, and you know, I, oh God, Christ, I just really can't be asked with those types of kind of nonsense, it's just a big bloody look at me how much I know type thing and moaning for the sake of it but it's a fantastic box really well worth getting and um sound wise as well it's um they haven't done uh, an art uh, an artificial surround soundtrack the picture quality is absolutely brilliant as well there are some kind of um damage to the print that you can still see and stuff but I'm not really bothered when they don't kind of clear that up I like them to kind of just do a good job with what's there and they certainly have done that overall a fairly brilliant um, Criterion release and I think it kind of more than justified the hype and interest that was surrounding it. Okay so the last release of January was Criterion's by number 595 Francesco Rossi's The Moment of Truth. Passami la moneta. Sta attento. Non farla vedere. There are two other uh, Francesco Rossi films in the Criterion Collection, Salvatore Giuliano and Hands Over the City. And I saw both last year uh, back to back and I've gone back and watched them both in preparation for this episode. And I kind of, I don't think I appreciated at the time how much I enjoyed them and how much I was kind of fascinated by them. And I, I wanted to watch them before the moment of truth because just to kind of, I, I suppose it was the same with the Brunelli, just kind of like tune in to how he kind of works. And when I saw it, that there was going to be another Francesco Rossi film in the collection, I was quite excited. And I have to confess, the moment of truth did not disappoint me at all. But I do have to kind of give one word of warning for anyone who's thinking of watching it. If you are a kind of an animal lover, and I, I would count myself as being that, um, this film is incredibly hard to watch. And paradoxically, for a film that I enjoyed so much, um, I, there's not really a great deal I think I can talk about. I think it's one of those ones where... It's a real kind of love it or hate it type of a film. And I would kind of really implore you to go out and see it. But what is the film actually about? Well, it follows the story of a young man called Miguel who 
is actually played um, by a real-life matador called Miguel Ramon, Miguel Romero McGrin, and um, he was a non-professional actor who uh, Rossi cast on the basis of his uh, bullfighting abilities. But the story focuses on him, and he is a young man who leaves the country and his um, mother and father, who are very poor farmers, to go to Barcelona to try and make some more money in the city and whilst he's in Barcelona he finds it incredibly hard to get jobs and the only way he can get real work is by working through money lenders who take a massive cut of his wage and he gets the various kind of manual labour jobs such as kind of um, construction work or working down at the dock and Miguel doesn't want this life he wants something better and he kind of alludes to the fact that is this all that his life will be if he decides to stay? And he sees that there are matadors who earn vast amounts of money fighting bulls in the arena. And he enlists in a bullfighting school. And relatively quickly, through um, bravery and a, mix, a bit of stupidity, becomes one of Spain's greatest and most highest paid bullfighters. There isn't really much I can add to the story. It is a very simplistic story, which I think is a very, very deliberately so as well, which I'll talk about in a minute. But I think Rossi's films achieve an immediacy and I, I suppose a there is a nature to them which reminds me of kind of almost cinema verite. He wasn't much for one for using scripts, almost kind of always used um, a mixture of professional and non-professional actors, especially in uh, Hands Over the City where uh, Rod Steiger's actually in it. But you get this feeling that when you're in a scene with Rossi, like literally anything can happen and that it is unfolding organically before your eyes. Often you have characters talking over each other. You're not really sure who the main focus of the conversation is. And it, it, it's... I guess it's that kind of um, neorealism um, from Italian cinema that obviously he's been greatly influenced by and part of that movement. Now, in the context of the moment of truth, you sort of feel like an interloper who's just kind of there along with Miguel as he moves on. And, and how this kind of translates to the moment of truth is that it almost just feels like you're watching a documentary and there's something I'll get to in a little bit when it comes to the bullfighting, which is certainly um, quite uh, integral to this film. But it, it's not a it's not a film. I mean, we've all seen this type of thing before. It's the Rocky story, isn't it? I mean, I, I could almost say this is a kind of the the Rocky of bullfighting. But it all seems so kind of natural and uncontrived. There isn't kind of I suppose you know, loads and loads of training montages. You know, Miguel does kind of go from he, he literally actually breaks in on a fight um, and then kind of makes a bit of notoriety for himself by kind of jumping in the arena when there's a bullfight going on and, and uh, sort of on the basis of that he goes around kind of uh, trying to get an agent almost sort of saying you know, look how brave I am but I think because the actor playing him is obviously uh, a non-professional as well and he's a really kind of like good-looking charismatic guy you find yourself kind of re really unsure of what direction this film's going in because obviously Miguel kind of makes his kind of wealth quite quickly. This isn't a particularly hard journey for him. What it is though is it's, I, I personally found it a very moving film and I, I suppose you need to kind of think about kind of 
um, Spain at the time. It, you know, Spain was a dictatorship um, after the war and up to about 1976 with General Franco in charge. And there's this brilliant mix in the film because uh, Miguel's parents um, are you know, obviously very, very poor and Spain almost looks almost medieval, I suppose, in the country scenes. But when he gets to Barcelona, there's this sort of... Um, clearly kind of everyone has, you know, they look like, uh, I suppose, James Dean in a way, and have the leather jackets and the slick back hair, and they're kind of listening to music in bars all day and things like that. And you can just tell that Miguel doesn't really want this as his life. And it, I, I kind of found it quite um, identifiable. You know, he he doesn't kind of want to just be kind of stuck in a rut but in order to kind of move himself out that he has to essentially risk his life in this ridiculous game I suppose that is bullfighting but there is no way you can talk about the moment of truth without really getting into the bullfights themselves a lot of this film is made up of bullfightings and it is Miguel out there fighting the bulls and if you are squeamish, then I think this will be an incredibly hard film to get through. And indeed, there were times in it when I was I was really kind of uncomfortable with what I see, especially um, the, you know, the, the ball attacking horses and things like that. And it's a strange one because I think, you know, I, I, I suppose I'm going to sound um, incredibly... Uh, stupid here but I don't necessarily think that preserving certain cultural practices and festivals and things like that is a good thing I don't it's it's something like you know I, I think it's very easy we have this sort of um I suppose it's a form of kind of almost ultralistic liberal thinking in which you kind of say yeah you know but it's important to preserve um for the sake of kind of people's cultural identity, certain practices which perhaps we find um, questionable. Well, my kind of take on it, say for something like, I don't know, female circumcision in Africa, um, I think it's an absolute disgraceful practice. It's just because it's been practiced for thousands of years, it has absolutely no justification or actual worth to anyone and should be eradicated. Now, it might seem incredibly arrogant of me to make that type of a statement in many respects. However, I sort of think about the poor women who are subjected to this horrific act, many of which who die. You know, should these women have to suffer generation after generation just so that we can sit there and say, well, there's cultural diversity in the world? I say no. And bullfighting is something which every kind of thing about it I find completely objectionable in the context of this film this is a you know the actual fighting is, is a genuine way of Miguel escaping the poverty of which he lives and he does kind of strike he does kind of make allude to the fact that you know this is um, a pretty dangerous thing for him to do and there's one really moving scene where he goes to the countryside and he's kind of wearing kind of nice clothes and he's walking around just seeing people tending to the crops and you can sort of see him kind of thinking, you know, you know, he's glad that he's left this life, but he also has this identification with it. And, you know, is it really kind of that bad a living? Is it a re is it really that all that awful to live like that? When you think about what he has to do and, you know, Miguel is, you know, he is kind of exploited by his, uh, you know, his managers and his agents and things like that. And all they're concerned about, even when he gets wounded, is that you know he gets back out there and earns some more money. 
but the fights themselves I think because obviously it is the um, because Miguel is actually playing himself you know obviously playing the character and it's actually a bullfighting they are absolutely thrilling to watch and it was something which I found myself kind of I was a bit I was always a little bit annoyed with myself because I'm, I'm watching these bullfights and all I'm thinking about is that poor bull and this is no easy quick way of dying for the ball they are first they have something called picadors which are guys on the back of the horse which stick um basically little swords in the back of the ball to kind of rear it up and then the matador will come out and he will kind of he flashes i can't remember what the name of the the word for it but basically the uh, the red cloth and the, he'll kind of get as close as he can to the ball now the titular moment of truth comes when the matador takes out his sword and sticks it into the top of the ball. I think it's meant to pierce either the heart or the lungs, and basically the ball will then stagger off and die. And it's absolutely horrible because you, you, you know, whilst you're watching it, you wear this. There's no special effects. There's no kind of, you know, um, trick shots. This is actually this guy out there fighting balls. And it does take, you know, there is uh, most of the film is made up of these of these scenes, and it's horrendous. It's bloody. It's painful. It is gory it's cruel but and now this is a big but and one I have been kind of um I suppose a little bit kind of uh, feeling a, a bit conflicted over it is it was saying it's so pretentious to say that it, you know this is a an art form of sorts but certainly there is a kind of a skill and a theatre to it and were he just going out there and then just hacking the ball to death I There'll be nothing in it really to kind of, I don't know, either admire in the act itself or kind of appreciate on any type of level whatsoever. And I was, I was about to say, I think it's kind of falling short. Then I was about to say aesthetic level. Yeah, well, there's nothing aesthetically pleasing about watching someone kill a bull, but you can certainly tell there is a certain grace of the way he does it. And what you can see in the way Miguel does it is that he obviously has this kind of presence in the arena and this flair for doing it and you know you, the, Rossi cuts to the crowd who are clearly cheering on and loving it and he also I, I think Rossi he doesn't kind of just sort of um say you know this is a great thing that happens I think as well he wants you to see this kind of conflict between man and animal and not for just being kind of a good thing but I, I think he wants you to kind of really kind of weigh up the uh the morality of it and one of the things that he used was he had a, a special 300 millimeter lens which means that you know on the widescreen i'd love to see this film projected in a cinema but even on a pretty big television the, you know the matador and versus the ball dominates the screen and you can tell him some of these balls they're almost as big as men you know they are well sorry as tall as men they're definitely bigger you know they weigh an absolute fucking ton i would imagine and one of those things coming tearing towards you with its horns out and then you kind of like you know ducking out away at the last moment it is ridiculously brave and it's i mean it's obviously it's so it's this bloody stupid bloody pastime let's be honest but i did find myself kind of appreciating the art of it and as i said as an animal lover that is an incredibly kind of conflicting um emotion to have 
and the other thing as well, you know, before I sort of watched this film, I've seen a few um, instances where people have been, well, I've heard of a, a few news reports of people being badly gored or kind of injured by a bullfight. And I always kind of think good on the bull, you know, because they're going to die. This isn't like, you know, if the bull clatters the matador, it doesn't kind of, um, it's not free to live its life. It will get killed eventually. And I always sort of think, you know, good on them. But the thing is, because um, you become so sort of invested in Miguel, and he is, he is a really kind of likeable guy, you know, his heart is in the right place. And you don't have the kind of the scenes where he kind of, you know, he becomes like a druggie. There's one scene where he sleeps with a woman, but he, he's not this kind of, you know, arsehole with it. He doesn't start kind of going back to his hometown smoking, you know, banknotes in front of his friends. He does seem to have his heart in the right place. He really wants to help out his mum and his dad and things like that. And he's just such a nice guy. And he, he does have this kind of um, naive charm about him that is really endearing, but... I think the film heads to a conclusion which, in in respect, I think it kind of it was fairly obvious in what direction it was going, and which I was a little bit disappointed in, to be honest with you, because with Rossi, I think one of the things is that you don't quite kind of um, know what you're going to get, and there are elements, I guess, in A Moment of Truth which are slightly more melodramatic than perhaps what I was expecting from him. Well, I mean, I say that I've only seen two films, but certainly there was you know a scene when Miguel leaves the village and things like that, and there's a kind of a, a big swell of music, and it, it, it felt some, it felt um, kind of a departure from what I'd seen before, but. Overall, I think this is, I've never really seen um, bullfighting in this kind of intimacy before. And it was, I guess, a um, an experience, really, a real genuine uh, cinematic experience, of which I don't think I've ever really been on before. You would never get anything like this now. You know, you would, it would just be, you know, CGI and... Um, I can't remember what's the word, those animatronic kind of uh, shots and things like that. And you would perhaps, and perhaps that's almost a good thing in a way. But, all, but also, I, I think I'm kind of glad that the moment of truth actually exists. Like I said, I would kind of recommend it with a kind of a big asterisk, which is if you can kind of get over the, uh, the inherent cruelty of the spectacle, then I think this is a film which, you know, it does predate the kind of likes of Rocky and things like that. And, uh, it has that kind of vibe to it, and um, certainly I, I'm going to have to start getting into more of Rossi's films. This was um, one of the more bare bones release from Criterion. Um, there is only one interview, one special feature, so which is an interview with Rossi from 2004. He's a really good speaker as well. He's actually quite an, an a, um, engaging guy, and it's certainly uh, very interesting. Only about 15 minutes long, but um, no, definitely he is someone whose films that I, I need to get hold of more and I, I'm not sure I think they're quite actually hard to um, get in the UK which is a bit of a shame but um, the film is um, it looks fantastic it is a anamorphic um, widescreen film his other two in the collection aren't and um, I think he also says this is his first film in colour and it, it does look um, it's very grainy um, very kind of, I wouldn't say dirty picture but it has this kind of orangey haze to it and I, I don't think that's because of um the condition of the negative or things like that I, I think it's just kind of it was just filmed um probably most of it I would imagine was probably filmed in the afternoons which was when these kind of these bullfights um tend to take place and I, I, I suppose that's just kind of a heat reasoning really I suppose it's pretty thirsty work but um I haven't seen it on blu-ray so I can't really um comment on how good the picture kind of 
looks in high definition. I just got the standard edition DVD. I haven't seen any reviews of it as well on Blu-ray.com and if anyone out there has got it, um, do let me know what it looks like. But overall, I think um, if you can handle the animal cruelty, there is a lot to find in the moment of truth. But I think I suppose the one thing I would say is that this isn't a very plot heavy film. It's not a particularly, it's a very complicated, it's not a very complicated film. So it's very straightforward. It's very simple. Um, and I would be really interested to hear what people thought of it and especially if people don't like it and kind of if you have seen it please do get in contact and let me know. Okay so that is going to be it for uh, this Criterion Roundup and what I've decided to do um, at the end of each of these episodes going forward is um, to pick one release that I would, were I only able to buy one release in a given month what one would it be and after a lot of uh, deliberation, I'm going to pick Godzilla as the film uh, this month. Fairly obvious one, perhaps, but um, I think I've kind of uh, I've, I've missed this film all my life, really. And I was really impressed with the packaging, um, the special features, and especially the commentary, which I particularly enjoyed. It looks great, and it'll look great on shelf. And I, I wonder if this is one of those films where uh, I know kind of criterion of license a lot of films from Toho but I wonder if this is one that they might try and um, kind of revoke the license for in a few years and I should imagine if it was to drop out of print just on the box uh, the packaging alone um, I think this one might be worth quite a bit and the other thing is well I don't know whether you know because the packaging obviously probably a little bit more expensive than normal you know will they release it in a um, just a more standard edition so if you can um, I would pick up Godzilla but also you can't really go wrong with any of them and as a kind of curiosity piece perhaps uh, Try and see the moment of truth and let me know what you think. Other than that, that's going to be it. Um, if you want to get in contact, please email me at 24framescast at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at 24framescast and you can come to the blog, which is uh, 24framescast.blogspot.com. I'll be in contact soon. Many thanks for listening. Bye.